Happy All Saints Sunday. You know, it doesn't really roll off the tongue, but we still have to say it because we are All Saints Church, and so this is what's called our patronal feast. All Saints Day is November 1st, but just so that we can celebrate it when we're all together, we do it this Sunday. And I absolutely love that the name of our church is All Saints. It means so many things. It reminds us of the importance of sainthood and of the great cloud of witnesses that surrounds us at all times. It also allows me to tell a very cheesy joke that really isn't that funny once a year. Because it allows me to compare ourselves to some other churches in the area, and I have to call them out by name. There's Grace Church in Brooklyn Heights, which has a lot of grace, but, well, no saints in the name. There's St. John's down the street right here in Park Slope, lovely place, and St. John, of course, was very important. There's St. Luke and St. Matthew in Clinton Hill. They have two, two saints in their name, and that's amazing. But right here, we don't have zero or one or two, but, but all the saints, all the saints. So I passed that on to a colleague who became rector of a church in Texas called All Saints, and I'm fingers crossed she tells that joke this Sunday as well. It's so important, though, because in this time and place in which we live, sainthood is not really appreciated. There's so many other things that we hold up to our young people that they should strive for. Things like celebrity, or popularity, or wealth. But sainthood is something very, very different. Something that comes from God. And so it's important for us, as the saints of God, to be an example to those in our own families, in our own lives, and in our community, of what sainthood is and why it is so important. And here at All Saints, this, among many other things, is the place where we come to practice our sainthood. You see, sainthood isn't something that just happens to you overnight. No, it's something you have to work at. And it's too hard to do on your own, let me tell you that. You need people around you who are striving with you toward that same goal. You need to be held accountable and given examples when you are falling down on the job. And make no doubt about it, it's probably the most important thing that you can do in this lifetime, is practice being a saint. So it makes sense that we would need a place to do it. And that place is here at All Saints Church. So what does it mean to be a saint? Because people so often say, well, I'm no saint. But what do they really mean when they're saying that? Well, luckily, we have so many examples in the Bible, in history, even in recent history and in current days. For Christians, we believe that all sainthood points back to Jesus, who himself was not only the example for how we should live our lives, but lived his life so perfectly that there's no way that any one person could ever, by his or her or their own will, live a life that perfect themselves. Every time that you are thinking about what you might do in a situation that is good, all you have to do is open up the gospel, look at what Jesus did, and try to come as close to that as possible. 
And what the Bible shows us and his example shows us is that we have a decision to make about how we're going to spend this one small, precious life that God has given to us. Will we spend this life striving towards God? Or will we spend it willingly hypnotized by the things that this society places before us to put us to sleep like zombies? When we choose to draw ever closer to God, we choose to take on those things which are eternal and not those things which are passing away. And that is precisely the truth that the saints saw in their own lives. And that's why it's so important to follow their example. Because long after celebrity and fame and wealth have all passed away, the example and the effect of the works of the saints still remain. And that's how you know the mark of sainthood. I want to tell you the story of two people. One of them a saint and one of them not. I have a good friend who's a yoga instructor, and several years ago, she asked me what my own uh, physical exercise routine was. And I said, well, I'm sort of trying to figure out what it is that I'm going to do, and some things sound like they'd be good and some things wouldn't. And she said, oh, you have a pre-exercise routine. (laughs) So here we have an example of a saint and a a (laughs) pre-saint. Let's start with the saint. It's someone who I am particularly fascinated by. Her name is Elizabeth of Hungary. She was born a princess in the Kingdom of Hungary at the time in the year 1207. So we're going way, way back, Middle Ages. Life was certainly very different. But what you'll notice about both of these people that I'm going to talk about is the way in which one thing in particular determined whether they would be a saint or not. And that one thing was the way they related to money. As you can imagine, Elizabeth, being a princess, was very wealthy. And at the age of 14, she married a man named Louis, who himself was also very wealthy and became a noble like her. Very soon after her marriage, the Franciscan order arrived in the town where they lived and ruled. And she became extremely influenced by the Franciscan doctrine and theology of simplicity in life and of equality among all people and of the importance of taking Jesus' commands about money seriously. And so she did a funny thing. She, the wealthiest person in the realm, started giving away everything that she had. You might think that Louis would have tried to stop her, but he loved it. He thought it was amazing and loved her all the more because of her generosity and kindness. During a particular time when Louis was away on state business attending to a natural disaster, Elizabeth took the opportunity to up her giving. She went to the poor in her realm and she handed away things, precious things from the treasury, giving away objects of the state, including robes and jewels. Imagine for a moment if King Charles III were away on a state visit, and while he was gone, Camilla Parker Bowles went into the treasury and started giving away crowns and scepters to the people who were the poorest in the United Kingdom. 
That's exactly what Elizabeth did. Her happy marriage to Louis ended when she was only 20 years old and he died. She was devastated and she took a vow to live almost like a nun, although she couldn't live in a monastic community. She moved to the town of Marburg and the men in her life tried to do, of course, what they always do and force her, because of political reasons, to marry again. They also took away her dowry, meaning all of her wealth. She fought to get her dowry back, and she threatened to cut her nose off so that she would be so hideous that no man would ever marry her again. And in doing that, she got all of her money back, and she took it all and built a hospital in the town. And then because she had no money after that, she spent the rest of her years working as what we would call today a nurse, caring for those who were the sickest in her community. She died at the age of 24, a short but blessed life. And I would say, a life of freedom. Elizabeth's understanding of her relationship with money was never an impediment to her relationship with God. She took the circumstances that she had around her, and she used them not only to better other people's lives, but to bring herself more closely to God and following the example that Jesus had set for her. This is a life well lived, and only 24 years to do it. Well, now on to the pre-saint, who involved himself in certain actions also relating to money at about the same time that Elizabeth was doing hers. You probably saw in the news that someone who was once considered to be one of the wealthiest people on the planet was convicted of multiple charges of fraud this very week in a Manhattan courtroom. His name is Sam Bankman-Fried, and he was the founder of a cryptocurrency exchange called FTX and also a hedge fund called Alameda Research. Sam Bankman-Fried founded both of these companies when he was just in his early 20s, and he did it basically with his friends from college. I've become sort of fascinated with this case, and I don't know why, but I think it's becoming clear. It's almost biblical in the sense of its misguidedness in terms of the way that all of these young people related to money. Now listen, I don't understand a whole lot about finance, and I'm not gonna to try to explain the whole thing to you. But let me put it this way. These two companies that he founded were kind of like as if one of them were a casino, and the other one was like, oh, kind of like a bank. And you would give your money to the bank, and then the bank took the money and gave it to the casino, which then lost it. When people came and tried to get their money out of the bank, people realized it was all gone and the whole thing came crashing down. But we're not just talking about a little bit of money. We're talking about $8 billion. That's billion with a B. How do you, by the age of 30, manage to steal $8 billion? That's pretty extraordinary. You probably noticed that we're in the middle of our stewardship campaign here at All Saints Church. Our stewardship goal is $300,000 in pledges. 
If any of you happens to know where that $8 billion is, you could fund ministry in this church, and I couldn't even figure it out on my calculator because the numbers, it won't take this many numbers, but I think, if I'm not wrong, you could fund ministry at this church for 27,000 years. One of the things that was fueling Sam Bankman-Fried was a philosophy he came across called effective altruism, or they shorten it by saying EA. This theory was created not too long ago by a philosopher in Cambridge, and it says that the ethically most expedient thing to do for anyone is to earn as much money as you possibly can so that you can then give it away. Well, the only problem with this philosophy is that, well, as you can see, someone who earned $8 billion never really gave it away. And at what point, how much is enough? And then why do you get to say how the money gets to be given away? Poor Sam Bankman-Fried is facing up to 105 years in prison, but he's only 31 years old. And that's why I say that he is a pre-saint. He has a good 50, maybe 60, maybe 70 years to sit around and think about the things that he did and his unique position in society to give a message to us from the lessons that he's learned about how to relate to money. What his example shows us is that greed and self-interest are forces that are very difficult for people to control individually. You can eventually convince yourself of your own rightness, your own morality, because money has this weird effect on people. It's just an abstract thing, and yet it can guide our decisions and our lives to the point of ruin, just as it did with Sam Bankman-Fried. So, Elizabeth of Hungary, a saint, who, the minute that she could, took all the money that she had and gave it to people who need it. And when she didn't have any at all, just spent the rest of her time serving those people who needed her. Sam Bagman-Fried, who believed in his own moral righteousness and allowed that belief to drive him to crimes that some people call the greatest financial crime perpetrated in human history, not one person having benefited from it. In fact, many people losing their savings and another group of people going to jail. The difference between these two people was how they related to their money. Jesus is very clear when he tells us how we, who are followers of him, should relate to our money. He tells us to store our treasure up in heaven where moth and rust do not corrupt. He tells us that it's easier for a rich man to pass through the eye of a needle, or easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. He tells the story of Lazarus, a beggar who sat outside the gate of a rich man's house begging for food, and when he died, went to heaven. When, when the rich man died, he didn't go to heaven. It's pretty clear. Of course, for those of us who are actually living in this life, we probably won't be able to have the level of freedom that Elizabeth of Hungary had. I, for one, don't feel at liberty to give away all of my possessions. 
for the sake of those who need it most. I don't know if that's because of fear or conditioning or whatever, but I'll admit there's a part of me that wishes that I had the freedom. We as people who live in this money-obsessed society need these words of the gospel. In John chapter 5, Jesus says, Very truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life and does not come under judgment. That word that Jesus gives us has so much to say about money. He tells us not to be ashamed if we don't have very much of it. He tells us that real treasure is in love, kindness, and goodness. He tells us not to get hypnotized by those forces that would have us chasing after something that is simply an illusion. And if we follow those words, then they lead us straight to eternal life rather than judgment. Take a look at our two people, Elizabeth of Hungary, living an eternal life even while she was still on this earth. Sam Bankman-Fried, living under judgment, facing a lifetime in prison. Friends, we are not perfect. Not any one of us is. And the money that passes through our possession and stewardship is like sand that goes through your hand when you try to hold it. All we have control over is what we do with that hand. We have the decision to use it to practice our sainthood or to use it to do something else. In this 2024 stewardship campaign season, our spiritual task is to sit down and take a moment and think about what we are doing and how we might act differently if that were our choice. Today, on All Saints Day, we have a glimpse of the future. In just a few moments, we will be baptizing Dream. And she gives us a vision and a reminder that the things that we do today will have impact on people of Dream's generation. That years and years and years from now, when most of us are gone, the things that we have done will determine what kind of life that she lives in. And in this money-obsessed society, I would submit that the things that we do with our money and the attitudes that we have towards it will have the greatest impact on the type of world that Dream will spend her life in. So, my fellow saints, God bless you in this season of self-examination when we look at the ways that we relate to our own money. I encourage you with the same encouragement that I try to give myself to try to live like a saint and not a pre-saint. Not to let your relationship with your material goods rule you, but rather to do everything in your power to live in the freedom of God's eternal life. Amen.